The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform. You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and a very warm welcome to today's briefing coming to you live from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme... I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul and coming up I'll be talking about President Erdogan's first visit to Egypt in 12 years. Turkey's President Erdogan is in Cairo and will assess the first visit after more than a decade of fractured relations. Plus... Pursuant to Section 2A of House Resolution 996, House Resolution 995 is hereby adopted. We'll be on the US-Mexico border after the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is impeached. Plus the fashion news too. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. We begin today by asking if we can see a thaw in relations between Turkey and Egypt. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is in Cairo today on his first visit in 12 years. High on the agenda is, unsurprisingly, Gaza. Well, Hannah Lucinda-Smith is Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. She joins me on the line now uh, from there. A very good afternoon to you, Hannah. Good afternoon. So just explain to us the, the, the purpose, the reason why Erdogan is in Cairo. Yeah, well, I mean, you talk about a thaw in relations. This is a thaw. Actually, this thaw has been kind of coming along for a couple of years now. Um, As you say, it's 12 years since Erdogan was in Egypt last time. That's because of everything that happened after the revolution there. Erdogan uh, threw his weight behind the Muslim Brotherhood government that came to power. And when that government was overthrown uh, by the military and Sisi became president, uh, it really set uh, the two off on bad relations. But uh, principally, what's brought them back together is realpolitik. They exist in the same neighbourhood. Turkey, uh, particularly since 2013, has found itself really increasingly isolated within the Middle East. It's uh, it created some firm friendships with uh, particularly Muslim Brotherhood-linked uh, countries such as Qatar or groups um, such as Hamas, for example. But with other countries such as Egypt and the UAE, where President Erdogan has always been, also been this week, um, really that's strained relationships. But that's taken its toll on Turkey's economy. And Erdogan's at a point now where that's his main focus. Um, so over the past couple of years, he's really been making moves to try and fix up these relationships that really had been strained for, for the past decade. This is a really difficult problem isn't it but you've you've hit the nail on the head insofar as turkey and egypt side with opposing camps and parties in in the region we have 
Um, Egypt's diplomatic relations with Israel fully functioning since Camp David in 1978. And then we also have, on the other side, Turkey and Recep Tayyip Erdogan constantly talking on behalf of the Palestinian people. And and that sort of tone is set among mainly most of the other countries in the region. So how do they go about trying to fix that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are ideological differences. I mean, nobody can deny that. And one of the kind of conditions from Egypt's side for this you know, defrosting of ties is that President Erdogan stops giving such support to uh, Muslim Brotherhood followers, particularly Egyptians who've uh, come to Turkey, found uh, you know, a place of safety, a uh, place of support in Istanbul. They've been setting up media channels, think tanks, criticizing countries uh, like Egypt very loudly. And Egypt wanted President Erdogan to kind of stamp that stamp down on that a little bit, be far less vocal about his ideological support for those kind of groups. Um, And I think, you know, whatever the differences are, and there are a lot of differences, as you say, these two countries are on different sides in places like Libya, they've backed different sides, in Syria as well. But I think all these countries and leaders are very, very good at realpolitik. And ultimately, you know, they all need to trade. They all exist in the same neighbourhood. And particularly with Turkey and Egypt, when we look at things like the the gas reserves under the eastern Mediterranean, um, that falls in the territory of several different countries, a lot of them which do not get on very well. But if they're going to exploit those reserves, they have to work together. So there comes a point when, you know, you can have your ideological differences, but ultimately, Ultimately, you know, economy comes before everything else. Because at the, at the end of the day, these two countries have always had a very good trading relationship, haven't they? And, and many of the each country's citizens go holidays in the others. Yeah, and that's something really interesting about Turkey generally. You know, Erdogan is an ideological leader, and particularly in terms of, uh, you know, his region in terms of the Middle East. And he's very clearly you know, staked his turf where he stands ideologically. But at the same time, it's really rare to see Turkey ever break trade relations uh, with any country, even with Israel still, even given everything that um, Erdogan is saying about Netanyahu, about Israel's attacks on Gaza, they're still trading. And it was the same with Turkey and Egypt. Uh, Trade actually increased over the past 10 years. It's about uh, $10 billion per year bilateral trade now. It's more than doubled in the past 10 years. So even while you have this kind of ideological, quite bitter uh, conflict going on, those trade relationships still continue. Just tell us a little bit about the fact that Erdogan has said that Gaza is going to stop, is going to top the agenda today in, in, in the meeting. But how much difference do the two countries believe they can make by, by bringing their own forces together? I think the main thing that they can do together is is to do with aid. And I think it was really significant that just before this meeting started between Sisi and Erdogan today, uh, a humanitarian plane touched down from Turkey in Egypt. So there's 12 doctors and nurses aboard, medical humanitarian aid, um, and that's going to be uh, heading into Gaza. So I think that's one thing where, you know, both countries have a lot to gain, not hoping not sounding too cynical there. But, you know, for both of them, it's a very, very um, emotive issue amongst the populations. That's why we see leaders like Erdogan and other leaders of Muslim countries, you know, giving such support to the Palestinians. It really is something that's very important to the people who who vote for them. So, um, yeah, I think both will be looking to, you know, get some kind of leverage out of that to show that they are leaders who are, you know, doing what they can to help the people in Gaza. And if you are another player in the Middle East and you're looking at Egypt and Turkey sitting down around the table, bringing back ambassadors, thawing relations, what message does that send to the rest of the region? 
I think most of the region is going to be quite relieved about this. You know, Erdogan has been the odd one out increasingly over the past 10 years. If we look back to the start of the Arab Spring, when he took this position of you know, throwing his support behind these Muslim Brotherhood movements, which were or, or came to the forefront of those protest movements, he looked like he was on the winning side. Fast forward five years, and it didn't look that way anymore. In, in Libya, in Syria, uh, in Egypt, um, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood groups either descended into chaos or they'd been overthrown. And you, Erdogan's ties with places like the Gulf, like Egypt, incredibly important in terms of economic ties, really started to, to wither. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this was always going to happen. I think it's interesting the way in which it happened, if we look back to 2019, when Mohamed Morsi, Istanbul's, uh, sorry, Egypt's uh, Muslim Brotherhood president, died, you know, there was a kind of symbolic funeral held from here in Istanbul. Erdogan attended it. I mean, really, really kind of forceful statements against Sisi and against uh, the government in Egypt. But at the same time, I do think that Morsi's death, in its way, kind of opened a way for relations to be re-established in the years following. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is eight minutes past midday. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. A quick summary now of the day's other news headlines from Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Thanks, Emma. Indonesia has gone to the polls with voters in the world's third largest democracy set to choose a successor to the popular president, Joko Widodo. The frontrunner is former defence minister Prabowo Subianto, a retired general previously accused of being involved in the killings of pro-democracy activists. Ukraine's military claims to have destroyed a large Russian landing ship near the occupied Crimean Peninsula. Ukrainian military intelligence published a video which it said shows naval drones striking the Caesar Kunikov. And Guyana has accused Venezuela of breaking international law as Caracas builds up troops near the country's shared border. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro claims Guyana has granted illegal oil licences in its resource-rich Essequibo region, which Venezuela claims as its own. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Now, in its struggle to keep a grip on a rebellion, Myanmar's junta has announced that it's introducing compulsory conscription for the country's young men and women. All men aged 18 to 35 and women aged 18 to 27 must serve for up to two years with service extension possible. Well, the announcement has not gone down well and uh, covering it has been Gwen Robinson, Nikkei's Asia editor-at-large. She joins me now uh, on the line. Very good afternoon to you, Gwen. Hello there, Emma. Um, just give us a li- little bit of the background as to why the junta feels it needs to introduce compulsory conscription. Right. Well, the, the broad interpretation, which is absolutely clear, is that basically the Myanmar military is beginning to collapse. We have seen extraordinary things, which I've been covering the country for uh, quite a long time, more than a decade. And uh, to see soldiers surrendering in droves. I mean, we saw surrenders of 3,000 soldiers in one day at one point in uh, the northeast. And uh, also extraordinary to see soldiers fleeing across borders around the country into Bangladesh, China. I mean, things are getting bad when you have to uh, escape to China and uh, um, India. Uh, So also some have ventured into Thailand. They've all been sent back. They've been handed back by uh, the various governments. But clearly morale is collapsing. I mean, really, to see these sort of uh, mass surrenders and uh, also defections, some soldiers have uh, joined the resistance forces as well. Um, So that's estimated about 5,000. But I think 
really the the surrenders and de- desertion is probably easily in the tens of thousands, according to various military analysts I spoke to. So um, the military regime, the SAC, State Administration Council, is in a very, very difficult place right now. So this is obviously three years almost to the to the day since the junta the junta mounted a coup, which has has transformed into a sustained rebellion. Why does the junta believe that conscription will allow them to get a better handle on things? Well, exactly. I mean, I think this analysis is really desperation, like they don't care. Um, you know, clearly this is a, a vastly unpopular move. It has panicked everyone inside, including, I mean, older people who are worried about their sons and daughters. I mean, this is all, as you said, women and men as well. But it's not just, you know, it, it, it's all contained in the law and uh, details are still coming out. But they have stated that it's two years mandatory service for um, these younger people up to 27, but three years service for professionals. And that includes, I mean, the military spokesman the other day said that includes economists, journalists, technicians, I mean, all kinds of people, and particularly doctors. They can be, they, they're going to be required to serve three years and for and that is up to 45 years old. And uh, they are extendable, as are the younger ones, up to five years in times of national emergency. Well, the country has been under a state of emergency for three years, so it's very clear you're going to be drafted. It's a national emergency. You very well may be kept for five years. Uh, So this is obviously panicking people. And I spoke to some friends today uh, saying that international schools and, in fact, high schools are kind of emptying out in Yangon because uh, parents are very worried about their senior year uh, sons, uh, students of 17 or even 18 years old. And uh, this conscription order is effective immediately, but uh, the SAC made it clear that they would be recruiting the first batch, calling up the first batch, which would be 5,000 people uh, from mid-April. So, there's not much time to move, and I, I really think people are panicking. You say yeah. you've been talking to some people who have been who fi- who are going to be finding themselves, you know, within the realms of conscription. What are they telling you? Well, exactly. So I've interviewed about uh, thirty um, young people who are obviously prime targets for conscription, and also. Uh, I've been analysing together with a, a Burmese colleague uh, social media posts of about 100. They are overwhelmingly um, defiant. There are people saying that they would rather, in fact, one fishmonger in the market told uh, told us that he would rather cut off his fingers or several fingers to be disabled, which would then exempt him from military service rather than serve the military. A lot of others are, I should say here, there are exemptions. Uh, Bizarrely, there's one exemption for married women. Uh, It says married women. There are exemptions for Buddhist monks. There are exemptions for um, university students and uh, a couple of other categories. So, Ironically, some people are saying, well, you've got sort of a rush of young women hastily planning to get married and a rush of young men hastily planning to join the monkhood. 
Um, those sort of things aren't very compatible. Women wanting to find some man to marry and and men wanting to go to the monkhood. But um, but broadly, yes, there are various get-out clauses. But uh, I think the ultimate uh, um, the ultimate conclusion is this will tip a lot of young people into finally going over to support the resistance. And as you said, the resistance has made huge gains in the last. Uh, since last October when they launched a big operation. So I think we'll see a lot more um, support for these resistance forces, either ethnic or so-called people's defence forces. So tell us exactly how the Myanmar authorities intend to enforce this. Well, they've done. They've started doing what uh, you might call an unofficial census, using local officials to uh, check the uh, headcounts of uh, people in those age brackets. I mean, I guess... The Burmese are obsessed with, um, you know, f- facts and figures and and uh, surveillance of local communities. So I'm sure they would know, um, they would have lists of families and who lives where. So I think how they would choose these hapless 5,000 is unclear. But a lot of people said to me, for example, I talked to some business executives in Yangon and they're all saying, we actually don't think the junta will target initially professionals as in office personnel and others um, in Yangon because they don't want to completely panic business as well. If you think that half your staff are going to be taken and conscripted into the military, that's not very good for investor confidence. Gwen Robinson, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. Time is 6.17am in Eagle Pass, Texas, which is uh, where we head now, because last year the US Customs and Border Protection Force arrested almost 2.5 million people who tried to enter, enter the country unlawfully. This was a new record, and without any legislative action in Washington, this year could see similar numbers. Our reporter H.J. Mai went to a Texas border town and sent us this report. Eagle Pass is a typical US border town. People for generations have been going back and forth, living and working in two countries. But over the past year, the city has become the epicenter of the U.S. immigration fight. We've seen the catastrophic consequences of Joe Biden's open border policies. That's Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He's talking about the rise in unlawful border crossings that have plagued the U.S. under President Joe Biden. Abbott, like many other Republicans, including the party's likely presidential candidate, Donald Trump, have warned about the dangers of unchecked illegal immigration. There's never been anything like this. Our country is being invaded. This is an invasion. This type of anti-immigrant rhetoric has been a trademark of the former president. From his rallying cry of building a wall to his promise of launching the largest deportation operation in the history of the United States, should he get re-elected. Stoking fear about illegal immigration has been a key strategy for him. But here in Eagle Pass, many people are tired of this political theater, says Eagle Pass local Jesse Fuentes. It is a political goldmine for the Republicans. They, uh, they feel that it's an issue that uh, is going to win them the election. And I'm just, I'm going, what about humanity? What about procedures? What about our community? What about our culture? Like many others, Fuentes is troubled by the state government's decision to take over a public park on the banks of the Rio Grande River, which marks the border between the U.S. and Mexico. The city, in December, 
saw a large spike in illegal crossings, with more than 4,000 arriving on a single day. Governor Abbott, shortly after, decided to deploy the Texas National Guard to Eagle Pass in order to combat the flow of migrants. Guard troops have since turned Shelby Park, which normally hosts sporting events and 4th of July celebrations, into a military base. The invasion here, I reiterate, is not from the immigrants. It's from Abbott. Yeah, it's his invasion of sending all these law enforcement down here. That's Juanita Martinez. She serves as the Democratic County Chair for Maverick County. She says the real reason Republican lawmakers take this hardline stance on immigration is simple. Racism. It's racism. And you are afraid that one day you're going to be the minority and you're going to get discriminated against, just like blacks and Hispanics have always been discriminated in this country. Maverick County has traditionally been a Democratic stronghold. But like in the rest of the country... Trump and Republicans have appealed to specific demographics. In the case of Eagle Pass... Young Hispanic males, where, what are they thinking? You know, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't understand it. Abbott, who has been an outspoken supporter of former President Donald Trump, has made several trips to Eagle Pass in recent weeks. His decision to wrestle the authority at the border away from federal authorities has led to a legal battle between Austin and Washington. Texas National Guard troops have since arriving at Shelby Park installed buoys in the Rio Grande and erected miles of concertina wire on the shores of the river and beyond. But people who are desperate to enter the U.S. are still trying to cross. Last month, a woman and two children drowned while trying to cross the river. But it's not just the treatment of migrants that Democrats like Martinez criticize. It's the potential violence that Abbott and others incite by using language like invasion. The community is suffering from vigilantes, militias, people coming down here wanting to kill people in the river because of his rhetoric. Can you believe that? Indeed, the FBI last week announced the arrest of a man on a weapons charge after he threatened to shoot migrants. A convoy of conservatives and far-right protesters, many of them Trump supporters, also traveled to Eagle Pass recently to see the so-called invasion firsthand. But many of those participants were left disappointed. Instead of a flow of migrants, they saw a quiet, close-knit community that has been thrust into the national spotlight by politics. For Monocle, in Eagle Pass, Texas, I'm HGMI. Well, that was a view from the border, an area of deep disagreement and views there. Um, listening to that was our senior news editor, Chris Chermack. Hello, Chris. Hello. Um, there's a wider context here, isn't there? In the last 24, 48 hours, that the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has been impeached because of what is happening in the uh, on the border. And this is a fairly unusual move, isn't it? Uh, extremely unusual, in fact, historic uh, when it comes to the U.S. Uh, Alejandro, Alejandro Mayorkas is the first sitting cabinet secretary ever to be impeached by the House of Representatives. There was one other case back after the Civil War of a war secretary being impeached, but he had already resigned by that point. So this is the first time that a cabinet secretary has been impeached over anything. We've obviously faced a number of impeachments over the last few years of Trump and an effort to impeach Biden as as well. But yes, to target a cabinet secretary like this is quite unprecedented. What's he accused of doing? Well, this is the interesting question. He is, so if you will, the bar for impeachment in the U.S. is high crimes and misdemeanors, as it's known in the U.S. Constitution. 
what he is being impeached for is essentially policy, and that's why this kind of is quite controversial in the U.S. He's he's accused of quote willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law. And of manifest incompetence, and that's what's been sort of outlined in these impeachment articles. Basically, they're accusing him of of failing to stop people from crossing the border into the United States, as H. J. Mai kind of outlined there the the issues on the ground there. That's that's what he's accused of. There isn't necessarily a specific crime there. Whose problem is this? Is it the White House's in terms of policy, or is this in, or is this Congress as well? I mean, we're looking at struggles to try to get um, a, a, an aid package pulled together for Ukraine, and it has been hinged on whether the borders can be tightened with Mexico. It hasn't. It hasn't. And this is part of this bizarre back and forth that we've been seeing in Congress because there was a package that included. Uh, reforms for the border, giving the White House more authority to close the border if they so desire. That was then stripped from a Senate package, and now it's focused solely on foreign aid. The House of Representatives, by contrast, now says, well, they want the immigration stuff back in in order to pass anything. And this is a general fight that's been going on about whether, for example, the White House already has authority to stem the record numbers that are at the border. They say they do not because the, the, the... Typically, asylum claims, especially that people have a right to claim asylum and the U.S. does not have a right to reject those claims. So this is why there is a key question here. Does Congress have to act or not in order for Joe Biden to be able to, which is, of course, what they argue when it comes to someone like Alejandro Mayorkas and whether he should face any kind of charges for what's happening at the border? Everything that is being done in the United States at the moment seems to be funneled towards the elections in November. How does the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, or indeed the the wider issues that H.J. Mai was was talking about there on the border, I mean, that plays very, very strongly into the way that this election is going to play out, doesn't it? It absolutely plays into the election and the politics of it, frankly. We've heard from Donald Trump in the past that basically he does not want a compromise on immigration. He was part of the reason that a compromise on that was nixed in the Senate, because that would, would look, that would look good for for Joe Biden in an election year. He would much rather have this kind of fight where we're impeaching uh, a cabinet secretary of Joe Biden's for failing to act on the border than actually have a policy compromise that would help what the situation on the border. So yes, we're in an election year where immigration is the hot-button topic and the question of what to do about it and who should do something about it and who's at fault is going to stay with us for the next nine months. Chris Chermack, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing live on Monocle Radio. Finally today, a quick look at uh, the latest fashion news. Dana Thomas is journalist and author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. She joins me as ever on the line from Paris. A very good afternoon to you, Dana. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well, thank you. And glad to have you on the programme. But we transport ourselves from Paris to New York, don't we? The snowy New York, where it's it's slushy and grey and the clothes are heavy and depressing as de- as the weather. <laughs> right. The, the fashion shows this season, you'd think that by now they would have moved on from the post-COVID, let's cover ourselves up and hide our bodies. I mean, we've had three years now to, to work off the COVID-20, right? But no, they're still sending out gigantic, you know, giant clothes 
They're clothes for giants. Shoulders as broad as long with, uh, you know, like linebacker padding and, you know, hemlines all the way to the floor and, you know, miles and miles of fabric that just hang down. Even even neckties that are down to the knee. Uh, Willie Sharvaria sent down this like this outfit that looked like something that Goofy would wear, you know, like just gigantic clothes. And uh, and then it's funny because in. And there's a lot of stealth wealth too. There's still the the no no colors, no embellishments, plain, simple, quiet luxury. I mean, this has been going on for a while now. And how much minimalism does one need? I think it's time to amp up the amp up the the shininess and the glam, which is interesting because in the street I see young women wearing teeny tiny shorts under their jackets, so it looks like they have nothing on but a blazer, or they're wearing these little hot pants with a, with a tank top, a crop top in the winter time. So clearly customers want sexy clothes again. I don't know when fashion is going to get with that. So who's right? Who's, I mean, are we right to be wearing teeny, teeny, tiny? Or, we, or should we all be hiding under a very expensive sackcloth? Well, I think there should be a, at least the choice. The only person who showed something somewhat sexy was Tommy Hilfiger. And con- honestly, looking at it, it was a little problematic because it was like schoolgirl pleated skirts with go-go boots. And while that's cool, it's kind of, well, uh, not too PC. So I don't know. I feel like customers should have a choice and not have to all look like monks. And right now, what everyone in fashion, at least in New York, is showing is monk-like clothes. Excellent. Someone moving away from monk-like clothing is Tiger Woods. Who'd have thought he was very good at designing golf wear? Well, it turns out that when we all said, what, Tiger Woods is splitting up with Nike after 27 years together? It was because he's starting his own company called Sunday Red. And it's called Sunday Red because whenever he plays a tournament on a Sunday, he wears red. And that's his good luck. His, you know, they're, you know, professional athletes are all super superstitious. So he wears red and then he thinks he wins. And he's come out with this very kind of high end luxury-ish apparel and footwear brand um, created with the golf equipment company TaylorMade. It's direct to consumer on the website. I guess the website must be Sunday Red. You can probably find it through TaylorMade too. And, you know, he says... He's going to be wearing things like his 3D knitted cashmere hoodie when he's out playing golf. So you can too. Well, when, one wonders, you know, when you think of golf wear, you think it's a very specific design and a specific style for a very specific audience. Um, is there any crossover here? Well, I think so, because if you think about what they're wearing, there's like nice pleated pants that men love and there's cardigans and there's polo shirts and there's your 3d knit cashmere hoodie which i know uh, a lot of women would love uh and yeah i think that actually it's far more easy to wear golf wear than say tennis (laughs) outside of the sport i don't know i'm not i'm not there yet i haven't quite (laughs) not quite yet give me time and i'll try and work it out the 3d cashmere hoodie might figure somewhere uh finally we bid adieu to edward ennenfall this uh, this month um he leaves british vogue in his current uh job but the uh i think a lot has been spoken about the fact that they managed to get 40 of the most astonishingly beautiful and powerful women all in the same place at the same time to do the cover Yes, he did. And but he he's the one who can pull that off. I mean, I I quite I am proud to say I worked for Edward for the last four years as his European sustainability editor, some of the time and as a contributing editor. And it was just such an honor to work for him. And what I found every time I ever mentioned British Vogue, the response was, oh, I love Edward. And I feel like this cover 
is a manifestation of that. Everyone said yes, of course, because everyone loves Edward. He's been in the business for a long time. He was at Vogue six and a half years. He did 153 covers and, uh, and or cover stars, cover stars later. He, this was his 76th and final edition of British Vogue. And, you know, he just, he's been in the business for 40 years, started out as a model and everybody loves him. And that cover just is proof. Dana Thomas in Paris, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. And that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Briefing. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers too, Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher is Naomi Ekwa and our studio manager is Steph Chungu. The Briefing's back at the same time tomorrow, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>